Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is an episode from our archives as we dig back and listen again to a chat about some of our team's research into facial recognition and whether you can trust this type of technology. With that, let's go ahead and shimmy on in after a quick word from Corey. Before we start our episode, I wanted to share a quick announcement with our WatchGuard Firebox customer and partner listeners. As you hopefully have already seen, we released detail about our four-step Cyclops Blink detection and remediation process last Wednesday, which eliminates the threat posed by malicious activity from the sophisticated, state-sponsored botnet known as Cyclops Blink. Working closely with government agencies like the FBI and the UK's NCSC, WatchGuard investigated and developed a remediation for the botnet, which may have affected a limited number of WatchGuard firewall appliances. If you use any of our firewall appliances and haven't done so already, you should immediately go to detection.watchguard.com to learn more about Cyclops Blink and follow those steps immediately. With that, back to our archive episode. So our first news story today... Uh, comes from the world of Google, where Google just released a open source vulnerability scanner that they're calling Tsunami, which is uh, a tool they've been using internally, and they're just releasing it now as a project. Uh, as part of their release notes, they noted that it's not a Google product. It is just a project, and they're going to turn it into free open source software and let the open source community help develop it. Now, the scanner, they said, was originally developed specifically for like massive enterprises like Google, uh, where you might have hundreds of thousands of network endpoints that are all connected to the internet, and you need to get a good idea of what kind of services are exposed and if anything needs to be patched and what have you. Uh, the scanner itself is split into two parts. So the first is basically just a port scanner uh, where it attempts to fingerprint exposed services using a combination of Nmaps network mapping engine and some custom code. And the second part is one where once it's identified what services those are, it'll load up the relevant vulnerability scanning modules, which come as like external packages, and then run those against the exposed services. Uh, I thought it's pretty cool that it's using Nmaps network mapping, network mapping engine. You and I use that really frequently in like hacking demos and stuff. And it does a really good job of fingerprinting, not just what service is running, but also even down to like the version and potentially the operating system behind it. Uh, so it's got a few modules that come with it. It is still in very early development for at least the open source version. I think they called it like pre-alpha at this point. Uh, where some of the modules, it has like ncrack built into it to try and test exposed services for weak credentials, which is a exceedingly common problem for services to have. I mean, we've got that database of what, like 20 billion passwords that we've gotten a hold of now. Uh, so it makes it really easy for an attacker to just build lists and hammer away with different credentials. By the way, NCrack may not be as well known, but it's pretty much the same developer as Nmaps and, and, and is actually another common tool for doing exactly what you just said, network auth cracking. Uh, what other tools does N whatever have? So we got Nmap, 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 do they have like Nmap reboot? 
Uh, those are the only two I know. I mean, <laughs> I, they have front ends for Nmap like Zenmap. And, uh, I guess they right have, on. yeah, but those are the two I'm most familiar with. Well, with uh, Tsunami anyway, uh, they've got a few design philosophies when it comes to the tool. First off, they're focusing on having zero false positives because especially in a large scale environment, if you have a false positive and suddenly you have to go patch or you think you have to go patch a thousand systems, that could be bad news bears. And they're also focusing on just serious vulnerabilities versus scanning everything uh, because they noted that alert fatigue is a pretty big issue in our industry where uh, especially with vulnerability scanners like i remember from my support days we saw this a ton where someone would come in with a vulnerability report with like a hundred uh flags on it for to varying degrees of severity and if you don't know exactly how to read it or what you're looking for it could be quite frightening despite the fact that 95 percent of those are basically benign issues or non-issues um so i i agree with those two philosophies now it is, like they said, built towards the larger enterprises, but I could definitely see this being just another free option for even smaller businesses too, especially once it starts to get more support for these external vulnerability modules too. Uh, it did literally just come out today or today as we're recording this. So I imagine within a bit of time, it, there, it has a chance of either developing into a good tool or going the way of some of Google's other projects where they just kind of disappear into nothing. So cool scene more vulnerability software out there uh we'll follow along and update if anything neat comes of it or if it starts to gain popularity by the way i do what? think it's been out on github for a month even though you know i i just noticed articles and even a netsec reddit post on it today mm -hmm. but i think the github's been live for a while oh there you go i think wasn't their last open source project Kubernetes, so I guess it does have a decent chance of catching taking off considering how popular that tool is. Yeah, no, I, I think it's very cool for them to release it. Maybe some of the work that they do, I, apparently Google gives some engineers a certain amount of time to do their own projects. So perhaps the result of that. Yeah. And I don't mind that it's not a supported product. I would rather have cool stuff released publicly for us to play with, even if it's not perfectly productized. And with open source software, there's a decent chance that if the community does like it, it'll take off really on its own without much help from Google. Yep. Always a bonus. Uh, so next up comes a article posted by an email security firm called Abnormal Security, uh, where they just published details from a phishing campaign uh, that's designed to steal Microsoft 365, uh, which is the new name of Office 365, super annoying, uh, designed to steal Microsoft 365 credentials, uh, which they found impacting over 50,000 mailboxes. So the message comes from uh, with a spoofed source email address uh, that looks like the official Zoom email address. And then it mimics an automated notification from Zoom claiming that the user's account has been suspended and they need to click on a link and log in in order to reactivate their account. Uh, if you click on that link, it directs you to a page that looks a lot like an Office 365 login page. But unlike some of the other phishing that we've pointed out, it isn't actually hosted on like a, a Windows.net domain or some other subdomain of a Microsoft Cloud service. It's actually on a completely unrelated domain. Um, but it still does look just like an Office 365 login and has a decent chance of tricking quite a few people. 
Now, I thought this was interesting, uh, or it was a good opportunity to talk about a few different things. Like, first off, the email, the attacker in this case spoofs the source address in the from header of the email address to be the official Zoom email. And you would think with all the protocols and technology that we have right now, we'd be able to catch and stop spoofed emails pretty dang easily. But that's the unfortunate fact is like, despite all these different protocols, it's actually not that easy. Like SPF, for example, can help pre prevent against envelope from spoofing, but that's not what's even displayed in the mail client. That's just what's handled by the mail server when it first receives a message. Uh, in order to protect against the from header spoofing, there's another tool or protocol called DKIM, domain keys, something mail, which protects against spoofing headers, but it's also really difficult to actually implement largely because you're cryptographically signing all of your messages, which means every single source of an email from your company has to have uh, access to this key in order to sign the message. And these days, a lot of companies use third-party services for things like marketing emails and other uh, notifications where that might not be a easy thing to accomplish. By the way, before we get too much into SPF, sender policy framework and DMARC, as you mentioned, I think it's worth having a tiny 101 conversation about email headers. Uh, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people realize that there's a number of headers in the email that are kind of the, who is this email coming from? And not all of them are actually treated legitimately. Like, like for instance, I think you talked about spoofing. One header that's part of an email is, is the basic from. And you would think that from would be who you're getting the email from. So, you know, in email header land, you'd see from colon followed by maybe a display name and an email address, or at the very least, an email address. But that from header is actually the weakest header as far as who the email is coming from. From my understanding, that particular from header is mostly to help email clients know what to display in the from field. And when we when you talk about easily spoofed, you know, since that is not necessarily where a return email would go, it's it's very easy, you know, even before you get to SPF or DKIM to try to detect this, to, to just change that to something else, even though replying to the email may actually not go to that address at all. And that gets to, just so you know, there's two other headers, just so the audience knows, return path colon and reply to colon. Both essentially the same thing. I don't think you need to have both in an email, but sometimes both are there. But in either case, to me, the return path or the reply to header is actually the stronger uh, indicator of who this emails from in the sense that if you reply to this email, that's where your reply is going. It's not necessarily going what's in the from field. So I felt, and it's just worth stepping back if you're ever a nerdy like me and Mark and you want to open up an email message, it's pretty easy to save any email message as an email file if you're using Outlook and look at it in a text editor. Notice there's these multiple fields. And the bad guys that know how to spoof headers are very smart about spoofing that from header, but actually having more legit stuff in the return path and the, the reply to headers, both to get responses and for perhaps getting past mechanisms. But yep. that said, those of are course, just, you're, uh, you're, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, those are just the headers. Like there's the envelope as well, which is basically the SMTP 
a simple mail transfer protocol communication between the mail servers as they transfer a message. And even those can be spoofed, but at least things like SPF are pretty strict on protecting against that. But what yeah, I think it's good now to get back into the, the DMARC, SPF, and DKIM and that, you know, not only do not everyone implement them, but sometimes they're hard to implement properly, right? Yeah, so SPF is uh, just basically a DNS text record that tells the recipient mail server where it should be expecting messages to come from. So if the mail server gets a message that's from watchguard.com, it can look up watchguards.com SPF record in DNS, and you'll see that uh, maybe this IP address is allowed to send it, maybe this whole domain, like Amazon email services are allowed to send it, maybe MailChimp's allowed to send it. Uh, and so long as the source of the connection comes from one of those IPs or domains uh, resolved to an IP, it'll accept the SMTP envelope for that. Now inside the envelope is the message itself, which includes a number of headers like the subject field and like date stamps and a whole bunch of other things that can be added to. And those are usually what's displayed, like you said, in the mail client, like the from header or used by the mail client to route return messages like the reply to or return path. And those are not protected by SPF records. They can be protected by DKIM, which is basically just cryptographic signing where in the DKIM header in an email, it'll note which headers it's signing. Just, just so, to pause for a second, people probably heard that SPF stands for Sender Policy Framework. Makes sense because it's that text file that's saying who the sender policy is, what IPs to ex expect as a sender. And DKIM, which you're now on to, is Domain Keys Identified Mail. Identified Mail, that's what the I is. Um, and that one, it notes which fields it's protecting. Usually it's like the from field, the reply to, the return path, like the really important ones. And then it cryptographically signs them with a uh, private key for which the public key is available in a DNS record as well. And then wrapping them all together is another one that you mentioned earlier, DMARC. Uh, Domain-based message authentication reporting and conformance. There you go. I would never memorize. I would that that would be a hard acronym for even me to pull out of my butt. <laughs> well, I wrote an article on it like two years ago, but it has slipped my mind. Uh, anyways, DMARC records are another DNS-based record. Uh, usually, it is underscore DMARC dot the domain dot uh, whatever the domain is like WatchGuard.com, and it doesn't on its own validate anything. All it does is it tells recipient mail servers whether the sender has a SPF record or DKIM, and then what it should do if it, uh, whatever that message is, fails validation. So it's like a reporting mechanism where we can say uh, watchguard.com has a SPF record and DKIM, and if the message fails, we want you to send a report to this reporting email address to let us know. Um, so. On the recipient sides, so like you as you're setting up your mail servers or configuring your uh, mail within Microsoft 365, have the option to verify all of these records. Uh, you can verify DMARC, you can set up DMARC reporting, you can verify SPF or DKIM if you want, and it can help protect against some spoofing. But like I said, like it can be difficult to implement in some cases, largely because we, especially smaller companies, rely on a lot of third-party tools to send email messages on the domain's behalf. Like you might use MailChimp to send out survey emails or another program to send out marketing emails. And you need to have all those included in whatever policies or records you set or else 
those emails are going to fail validation and not uh, be received by their intended recipients. So if you do have everything set up, you can be protecting against this. Uh, in the case of uh, DKIM, though, it is, uh, at least in my experience, not widely used, um, or at least not as widely used as it could be, uh, which is why we still see so many messages come through with a from header spoofed, which is displayed right there in the mail client. Good news is there's other things you can do, like internally. Uh, we have rules set up in Office or Microsoft 365 and an Outlook where if a message comes in from like an executive claiming to be from an executive, but it's associated with a non-WatchGuard email, for example, it'll display an alert. Um, you can do other things similar to that too, just to add a little bit of protection where uh, you might receive an email <laughs> claiming to be from Corey, for example, asking me to go buy a bunch of gift cards and scratch them off and send them the codes. By the way, the other thing about uh, the whole DMARC setup, SPF and DKIM, is it's the kind of thing that everyone has to participate in, right? I mean, WatchGuard can take the time to set up SPF and DKIM for our domain. And uh, let's say we even set it up in the best possible way, which isn't always the case. But uh, we can set it up, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, give you the protection to know that if Corey Knockreiner at WatchGuard.com sends you an email, we may have set all that up, but if you haven't on your receiving server set up your server to pay attention to that, you may not get the benefit of what we did. Uh, and vice versa, there's a difference between setting up your domain with these domain keys and, and setting the SPF stuff as well with actually telling your server to look for it in incoming email, uh, which is more a server setup process. Um, right, Mark, essentially? So the, so the point being is besides setting up uh, SPF in, in DKIM for your own domain, you want to make sure your receiving email server is set up to, to validate that of, of, of anyone sending you mail as well, and then figure out, you know, how strict you're going to be about it. Because like Mark says, a lot of people aren't doing DKIM, for instance. So maybe it doesn't mean you have, you don't get mail from them at all, but you, you have to realize that if not everyone supports it, it's kind of limited. The uh, last report I'm finding shows that for DMARC adoption in 2019, 80% of mail servers have no policy whatsoever. Uh, and only 8% of mail servers total have a policy that quarantine that says to quarantine or reject mail that uh, fails validation. So it still has a very long way to go in terms of adoption. Um, but they are like, they're better than nothing. So if you do have time to set them up, uh, they can at least help protect uh, against your company's domain from being spoofed and then also on the recipient side help protect your users from receiving messages from domains that have been spoofed and i would say this is one of the best ways we know today like we're right now we're kind of poo-pooing how much this is adopted but that doesn't mean we're not recommending you go and do it the only way to to get an industry consensus is for people to start using these tools or or, or protocols i should say and I, i'm guessing almost any product you have supports them uh, for email server. So we encourage you to go use them. The more people that use them, the more powerful they'll actually become. Yep. And there's a, a series of articles linked on Secplicity. We'll stick them in the show notes too, that I wrote about SPF, DKIM, and DMARC that included tips and uh, tools on how to set them up and verify them too. So 
check the show notes and I'll link them there too. Moving on to our final story. Uh, this actually comes from research from WatchGuard Threat Lab, where just last week, one of our security analysts published his own research on facial recognition accuracy comparisons between men and women. Uh, so Trevor Collins, one of our uh, security analysts who you've seen if you've attended any of our uh, recent Internet Security Report uh, webinars. One of the co-authors uh, there. Yep. One of the co-authors of the report uh, used Amazon's recognition service, which is their cloud-based uh, image recognition tool. Uh, and several different machine learning and AI models and algorithms to test the accuracy of identifying some well-known politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures. And in the end, he found that women were 18% more likely to be misidentified than men. And now some other researchers have pointed out biases in facial recognition with uh, different technologies when it comes to race, for example. Like a federal study just last year found that Asian and African-Americans were up to 100 times more likely to be identified than white men. Uh, but there hadn't really been a whole lot of research on uh, between different sexes, too. So I thought this was some really interesting work uh, by Trevor in this case with a interesting result, too. Yeah. By the way, you went past it so fast. But just so the audience knows, Amazon's image recognition a tool which he used is actually called recognition, although it has one of those fancy uh, Silicon Valley spe spellings of recognition with a K. Uh, no, I, I thought it was fantastic. And it, it turns out that he found biases very similar to the racial biases as well. Yeah, uh, he tried to uh, like surmise why there were these variations. Uh, some of the ideas he came up with were maybe different variances in like makeup or ha hairstyles, for example, or at least greater variances between like day-to-day -day for women and day-to-day -to, -day to men. Uh, or it could just be underrepresentations in training since models are, AI models are really only as good as their training are. And if you're not feeding enough of, for example, pictures of women into it, it could be worse training in that case. Yeah, very interesting. I think the same type of research, as you mentioned, that uh, did with racial bias, is it lack of representation in training databases for the images used to train? Or is it something more technical and specific, like contrasts of cameras? Or, or as you point out, I think it's very interesting to consider makeup adding variance to people every day. Yeah. Now, facial recognition has for, I guess for a while been a hot topic, but it's really come to a head recently of becoming this hot topic issue when it comes to its use by governments and law enforcement, for example, largely because there are like proven biases in it, whether it be race or sex or even just the lighting in the room that can cause misidentification in at least what I would consider to be uh, unacceptable percentages. Like, and it's kind of coming to a head recently just last month, for example, Amazon announced that they're banning police from using their fa facial recognition technology for the next year. Microsoft said they're not going to sell theirs to police without a federal regulation. Uh, IBM just threw in the towel and said they're not going to offer, develop, or research any facial recognition technology whatsoever uh, because of potential human rights abuses. Like all these major tech companies are basically saying, whoa, whoa, maybe we're developing it a little or using it a little too fast um, because it's not like it's it's never going to be 100 percent accurate, but its accuracy apparently is 
just not good enough in some cases, and especially in ones where they're uh, targeting minorities or uh, like women, for example. Now that that's obviously just in the states, it's still in use quite widely across the world. Like last year, I didn't know this until I was researching this. Uh, China actually began requiring anyone who registers a SIM card for a mobile phone uh, to submit to a facial recognition scan. Uh, they said it's to protect the legitimate rights and interests of citizens in cyberspace. But basically now they'll be able to tie a mobile phone to a specific person. And because they have facial recognition deployed throughout their country, basically, they'll be able to track not just what you're doing on the internet, but where you are while you're doing it on the internet. So, which... so let, let me be devil's advocate here for a second. And, uh, you know, I actually don't mind slowing down facial recognition. But, you know, China is saying to protect legitimate rights and interests of citizens in cyberspace. I will say to, to that point, anonymity online is starting to become more dangerous uh, in that from even a security perspective, right? I mean, one of the things we're trying to figure out is how to allow a strong authentication in a digital age with all, you know, password theft, multi-factor hacks, how do you even know the person that set up the credential in the first place was really the person they said they were? So, you know, so just to have the devil's advocate or conversation, you know, one might argue that, that facial recognition is one way to actually, on a more human level, make sure that the person that's attached to something, whether it's a phone, a credit card, a digital payment system, is that person. So what, what do you think of that? You know, on one hand, you have the privacy risk and the chance of bad actors or bad governments using that to track people. But on the other hand, you know, there are some people that argue for some sort of federated identity online and to kind of re remove the anonymity. Uh, you know, I would say there's arguments for why anonymity is good, too. Uh, but there's there's arguments why anonymity is also what allows digital crime and people to say worse things than they would in person. Do you have any thoughts on that personally? <laughs> I'm with you on your like devil's advocate. Uh, yes, it would be great if this tool was strictly used to go after actual like criminals or people that are, uh, you know, being terrible people on cyberspace and being hidden by anonymity. But like when you take a look back at the country that's doing this and they're like alleged human rights abuses, I just, I, I, you know that they're going to use it for like, if a journalist posts something criticizing the government, they're going to go track down exactly who it was and where it came from. I'll like, take it a step further and say my personal belief, I'm being a devil's advocate, but I don't trust America with the technology. You right. know, we're talking about China, who's who's actually pretty globally being shown to not necessarily be a good government and do some pretty drastic actions. Uh, but I, I don't actually, I think America does a lot of similar things. And while you certainly could use the tools to track down criminals, I could also see certain people in power using the tools to, uh, you know, track people that aren't of their political beliefs or other things too. So I'm, I'm, I definitely see that. On the flip side, I think this is actually one of those kind of paradoxes we're going to find ourselves in where privacy, We've you and I have talked a lot about why privacy is important, why I personally think privacy is actually part of security. And yet 
I do want some sort of stronger validation online that I am really me uh, when it comes to money and stuff like that. <laughs> Maybe as a opt-in only thing on a specific application or service yeah. basis. I personally because... don't think it's it's a, 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 a facial recognition. I think this should be some sort of digital social security card or national ID card that governments give to a person. Uh, you know, but one that actually has a, a digital cryptography, you know, as a public not just a nine-digit number or whatever yeah, it is. Not just a nine-digit number, but something that was designed to be secure. Granted, then you have to deal with the loss and the people that screw up with that. But still, I think that's a, a good way to go. But anyways, I just think it's interesting because I do think we're coming to a, a place on the internet where we're going to want to validate identity online and, and go away from the anonymity, even though a lot of us grew up and like the anonymity online for positive reasons too. But I do think uh, <laughs> things like facial recognition are going too far. The power it gives you is not worth the small advantages that it also offers. I'd say it's kind of caught or at least similar to the arguments for encryption backdoors where yes, it can be used to uh, go after criminals, but it can also it leaves people wide open to abuse. Uh, now, obviously, like encryption backdoors also have the risk of just a straight up cyber criminal, not even someone in the government getting a hold of it and then breaking privacy for everyone. But it is like, in my opinion, kind of similar where yes, it can be used for good and you know, there's a decent chance it probably will be used for good, at least in the majority, but it is just ripe for abuse by people in power. Uh, there are other facial recognition uh, applications, at least in use in the States now too. Like Hawaii is actually in the process of testing facial recognition in their airports uh, as a part of limiting the spread of COVID where they're paired with a temperature sensor. Uh, they can identify people that have a fever and if they identify someone with a fever, then they take a picture of them, run it through their facial recognition system, and then track them through the airport so they can pull them aside for like secondary screening. Uh, they do say that the images are purged after 30 minutes after being taken in this case, but it is still another uh, privacy concern. Like, uh, are you now implicitly opting into uh, being tracked through an airport now just by traveling through it? Obviously, this one, they're trying to spread a extremely virulent disease like this does have a noble intention, but it's another potential privacy abuse issue, too. For sure. I will say that this is and by the way, our, our faces are probably recorded in certain countries already. I, I've noticed other countries yes. do make visitors similar to America, like Americans don't have to look at the camera when we're coming home. But if you ever notice the folks in other lines, they have a camera that they have to look at. And there are countries that take foreign citizens picture and in worst case fingerprints digitally. So you definitely have to consider that even what state, what, what country you go to. Americans traveling to the UK get to go through those lines now too, where you don't even have to talk to like a border agent. You just walk up, scan your passport, and get your picture taken into their database. Uh, even like airlines have started doing it too, or at least right before all the airlines uh, S hit the fan with COVID, you were seeing uh, facial re recognition being deployed for uh, even boarding, where there were a few Delta flights I was on where they weren't even taking tickets. They just said, look at the camera and get on. Um, I've seen a few of them in security as well, like at TSA 
where they don't even ask for your ID anymore. You have the, at least in this case, it's opt-in. You have the option of looking at a camera and then they'll use that to validate you. And so, I don't know, I, I'm a pretty big privacy dude, so I don't like these, but I do at least recognize that in some cases, like, yeah, it is probably more efficient just to have people walk through a uh, security checkpoint, look at a camera and go on their way. I, I would also argue that there's ways to do it to, to design facial recognition more securely uh, to, to give a very solid example. And by the way, I think there's tons of really solid societal benefits to facial recognition, even if they come down to me being lazy. I love the fact that I can look at my phone and computer and unlock it now. You know, saves me a lot of time. It's easy. I love it. Uh, now, if that, if to do that, I had to upload my image to a database that the government had access to, I'd, that might not be worth it anymore. But in most of the the systems that do that sort of facial unlocking, the devil's in the details. Like I, I think we, Microsoft Hello does this too. But I know for sure Apple, your image is never shared with Apple to get Face ID to work. That that the metadata that that or or, or let's say the. <laughs> Uh, the, the, your image is never really stored at all, really. Yeah, it's a, the, the, the characteristics of your face that they digitally store, even that isn't uploaded to, to Apple. It becomes a part of your secure enclave on the actual device that no one but you, the person with the passcode on the device, has access to. And the only thing Apple gets from it is the device checks the secure enclave, checks that the face matches, and gives a yes or no. And that yes or no is then shared with Apple servers in a, of course, encrypted fashion. Uh, so to me, that's the type of facial recognition system where I get a lot of benefit out of it, but I also control where, where my face is. You know what I mean? And I, so to that extent, and it, to, to some extent, Hawaii is trying to do that, right? You know, unfortunately, you don't control the devices they're, they're using. So there is some device that apparently has your face for a period of time. But the fact that they're at least trying to get rid of it, it is something. So I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is th this isn't us, or at least not me, saying facial recognition is absolutely bad. But as we go towards these systems, we definitely have to think of our privacy. And we should look at these models, these systems that can use your face. If it's ever a device you own, they can use your face as a form of recognition or validation without actually giving away your face to all these other actors, whether good or bad, that we're worried about. Ultimately, it comes down to us not trusting other people to protect our privacy the way we would protect our own privacy. So if you can control who has access to your face and it's only you, and that way when you're, you're using it in a technical system, you still retain that control, that's actually a good way to create something. In my Maybe we move towards a future where we've got like not an ID card, but like an ID module, like a digital module that's got a cryptographic key and a camera on it and like a fingerprint reader where you have to get biometrics to unlock it and then it hooks over Bluetooth to whatever you're trying to authenticate to, whether it be a soda machine or an airport gate. And that's what allows you through. And then maybe our face still becomes our recognition. But in this case, this face never leaves this device that's given only to us. <laughs> That would be pretty cool. Uh, that is probably a very long ways off, though, because technology is still expensive. <laughs> and imagine that everyone going with a single standard to do this. Yep. Yeah. That will happen Good luck. quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are some other interesting applications for fac facial recognition. 
I saw one that's like in Japan where a bunch of uh, vending machines now by a company called Daidu are installing facial recognition systems on their vending machines where you can create an account, give them a photo and your credit card, and all you have to do is walk up to the machine, scans your face, and get your soda. I think that's kind of interesting. A, it's opt-in, so it's not like a government thing. It's not required. You can still use your credit card if you want, but if you happen to be like stuck in a train station with no cash and no wallet and you really want a drink, just walk up to the machine and get it from there. That's kind of neat. And that's the thing. I think despite what you and I believe about the privacy, I do think technology is neither good or bad. It's how we use it. But unfortunately, I also think that once technology comes out and it's something that can provide some sort of value, whether it's good or bad, it's hard to stop it. So while I, I, I am kind of, I, I do like that these big companies are kind of rethinking how quickly they open source their facial recognition systems and how quickly they open up to actors that they may not trust. I do think it's kind of a Pandora's box and it's too late. We are going to see facial recognition used everywhere. And we can't really talk about or end talking about facial recognition without talking about the big elephant in the room, which is Clearview AI. I think we've mentioned them a few times on this podcast. Uh, they're the ones who went through and scraped images from Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, Venmo, basically every social media application that might have pictures of people. They, they were pretty much the ones that people were afraid that police and others could use them to track protesters, which is probably why many of these big companies kind of slowed down their projects. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Clearvi Clearview AI claims to have a database of 3 billion images now. Uh, they were basically given cease and desist letters by every single social media network on the planet, but they never did stop. Uh, well, just this last week, the governments of Australia and the UK have opened a joint investigation into Clearview AI's information handling practices. Uh, I know it was the ACLU also filed a lawsuit claiming it was against uh, Indiana's laws for um, biometrics, the same reason that Facebook got in trouble and got a pretty massive fine. Uh, for their image recognition when you upload a picture for tagging people. Uh, so Clearview actually, I forgot, they had a data breach recently and it wasn't their image database, but it revealed their client list. And yeah, they have clients that are law enforcement, uh, the Department of um, Department of Defense, for example. Um, but they also had a lot of retailers in it too, like Best Buy and Macy's were clients of them. And I'm trying to think maybe like trying to catch shoplifters upload a picture of a shoplifter, figure out who they are, and send the police after them. Could even be what you're talking about with vending machines, but only one day we'd have a Best Buy, like an Amazon store, where we walk in, grab stuff, and walk out, and it's really facial recognition that's billing us for whatever we were carrying. You never that know. That actually is really creepy. I do not like that idea at all. Have you used one of the Amazon stores yet? I haven't, but I saw a great, I think it was from like The Stranger or some like satire news thing where during the riots in Seattle, it was uh, Seattle riots proved that Amazon Go is a success. Shoplifters successfully charged for all purchases, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't used it. I, I mean, the idea seems interesting of just going and picking stuff and leaving. But again, like I, it's not like I'm a, criminal and I do bad things. I just like, I value my privacy and I don't like giving that up just for to save like the two minutes it would take me to go through the self checkout lane to pay for whatever I bought. I think it's an interesting idea, just not something I'm a big fan of. Have you used them? 
I used the Amazon store once just because I thought it was weird and interesting, and I felt weird the whole time doing it. You feel like you are shoplifting, even though you know you're <laughs> uh, supposed to be being checked out. Uh, I actually, I, I don't have as much hope for you, by the way, I, I, as you do. I'm, I'm very pro-privacy and pro-security uh, because I am a super security nerd. And I spend the extra time to to do things that are kind of a pain in the ass just to keep that. Uh, but we know that you can give people a chocolate bar and they'll give you your password. So I, I actually don't have uh, much hope that humanity in general is as patient with you as you with uh, the few extra steps it takes to guard your privacy. I'm afraid Facebook is proven we're we're happy to give up all our privacy for a shiny widget. Yeah, so I guess what moral of the story is there's nothing you can do and just wait a few years and it's going to be facial recognition everywhere with extreme biases. Yeah, we just ended on our perfect theme. <laughs> Lack of hope. <laughs> I'm kidding. As we always uh, do. Say. No, you can. we can guard it, but it's a personal choice. It's up to you to guard your own privacy. I don't think that anyone's going to do it for you. <laughs> no. Uh, I, we also kind of glossed over it, but Trevor's report is actually really detailed. Uh, check it out on secplicity.org. Uh, it should be pinned right at the top for the next uh, little bit or so because did a great job of doing a statistically relevant research on this topic that not a lot of people had looked at. Yeah, and you got to play with a lot of neat uh, facial recognition tools that you can anyone can get access to, which is pretty cool. Yep. Uh, cool stuff. Check it out. And I don't know, keep opting out of facial recognition so but like people like me don't have to deal with it. <laughs> hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey's at Secadapt, and the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us next week.